You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. The Book of Acts, we are studying about the early days of Christianity, and one of the reasons why this book is so exciting is because uh, we see that God did a great work at this time through ordinary people. And I don't know about you, but that stirs my heart because I'm an ordinary person person. And I think that if God can do great things through them at that time, through ordinary people like them, well then why couldn't he also do great things in our time through ordinary people like us? But as we read through the book of Acts, there's also something that we must say. And that is this, that not everything in the early church was perfect. It wasn't all just rosy and great. There were problems just like there are in any church at any time. And here in Acts chapter 6, what we're going to see in this chapter is we're going to see that a problem arose in the church in the early days of Christianity, which had the potential to split and divide and destroy the church. But the apostles, the leaders of the church, they responded quickly, they, decided, they responded wisely, and they responded decisively. And as a result, the church got stronger instead of weaker, and they continued to carry out that mission that Jesus had given them to change the world one life at a time by proclaiming the message of the gospel. So the title of today's message is Servant Leadership, and here's how we're going to break it down. First, we're going to look at church problems. Then we're going to look at a wise response. And thirdly, we're going to look at how to change the world. Church problems, wise response, how to change the world. Let's begin. First of all, the first thing we're going to see is church problems, specifically in the area of internal strife. So please read with me verse 1 of Acts chapter 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now up until this point in the book of Acts, what we've seen is that the challenges that the Christian church has faced have come mostly from the outside. Before his departure, Jesus commissioned his disciples. He commissioned them and sent them out to spread the, li- the message of hope and life through the gospel throughout the whole world and to make disciples of him. And from the moment they started doing that, they faced opposition, primarily from the local authorities. And over and over now, four times now, we've seen how the local authorities tried to stop the Christians from talking about Jesus and sharing the gospel. And they did that through intimidation and threats, even through physical beatings. But none of those things succeeded in deterring these Christians from this mission that God had given them. In fact, we read that the Christians even rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. Their attitude, their resolve, it's incredible, it's inspiring. But in some ways, those outward attacks on the church, they were easier to handle than what's about to come next. You see, because outward attacks, when you are a group of people and you're attacked from the outside by some outward entity, it often has the effect of strengthening the group, bolstering your resolve. You see, when people attack from the outside, it often causes people to bond together in a greater way, to double down because they're in this together, and if they suffer, they're suffering together for a great and worthy cause. But this next challenge is one which is actually much more insidious and actually has greater potential to derail the Christians from their mission, and that is the problem of internal strife 
amongst the Christians in the church. People not getting along, different groups being formed, people's feelings getting hurt, people becoming resentful, even embittered towards other people in the church. It's the old divide and conquer tactic, isn't it? Outward attacks have only served to strengthen the church, but now inward strife truly threatens to weaken, divide, and distract the church from the mission that Jesus gave them. So we read here in verse 1 that complaining arose in the church. Now isn't that shocking? Who has ever heard of somebody complaining in church? Uh, Who has ever heard of such a thing? I only wish that there was something in this chapter that was relevant to us today. Now, of course, I'm joking. Uh, There are always complaints in church. I've been around church for a while, and if you have too, then you know what I'm talking about. People complain, right? Somebody doesn't like the music, the preacher talks too long, the church is too big, the church is too small, there aren't enough people my age, there are too many people my age, and there's not enough diversity, or, you know, the pastor's too good looking. We've heard them all, right? I mean, it's you know, but, but it is, isn't it refreshing to see here in the book of Acts that in the early church, they also had complaints. It wasn't perfect. They dealt with the same kind of issues that we deal with today. Anytime you get a group of people together who are not yet perfected and you tell them to live together and love each other and work together to accomplish great things for God's kingdom, there are going to be problems. You're going to face challenges. There are going to be disagreements. There are going to be personality clashes. There are going to be differences of preference. So it doesn't surprise us at all that conflicts and divisions and disputes arise. That's what happens. The question for us, though, is how are we going to deal with them when they do arise? Now, these guys, as we'll see, they dealt with it wisely. Everybody involved deals with this so well in a way that honors God, unites the believers, and keeps them focused on their mission. You know, church problems, complaints, internal strife, these things are nothing new. They've been a part of the church ever since the church has existed. That's what we see here in Acts chapter 6. But I cannot tell you how many people I know who have reacted to these things by just tossing in the towel and saying, you know what, Uh, if this is what's going to be part of church, you know, disagreements, internal strife, well then I'm just done with church. And they'll say stuff like, hey, I love Jesus, I'm down with the Bible, but church, no thanks. Don't need it, don't want it. I'm going to go solo. But let me tell you this. God loves church. You must have this perspective. And it is a perspective that comes from reading the Word, by the way. God loves church, blemishes and all. The church is called the body of Christ. It says that Jesus is the head and the church is his body, his hands and his feet in the world. And so to love Jesus is not only to embrace the head, but also to embrace the body. And let me tell you this also. Jesus loves church. Jesus established the church. Jesus is committed to the church so much so that he calls the church his bride. In other words, put it this way. Jesus loves church so much, he wants to marry it. You know, you say, well, if you love it so much, why don't you marry it? Jesus says, I think I will. So in the book of Revelation, John the apostle, he had a vision of Jesus. And you know what, where Jesus is at in that vision when, when John sees Jesus? 
He's walking amongst the churches. In other words, if you want to know where Jesus likes to hang out, here's where he likes to hang out. He likes to hang out around churches. His body, his bride, the gathering of disciples of Jesus in congregations, in communities that study together and serve together and worship together. You know, whenever I hear people talking down about church or minimizing the significance or importance or, or wonderfulness even of church, I have to say to those people, I'm pretty sure that Jesus does not share your sentiments. Uh, you know, that's his body you're talking about. That's his bride. Now, I have a bride. Uh, I have a wife. And I'll tell you this. She has some blemishes, and I know about them, but I'll tell you this also, I do love her, and I do not take kindly to it when other people talk negatively about her. And I believe that Jesus feels the same way about his bride. Jesus seems to think that church is pretty great. Jesus seems to think church is pretty important. In fact, Jesus loves church. And think about this in the big picture of the book of Acts. What's this the story of? Jesus establishes the church, then Jesus grows the church. Then he speaks to the church and tells them to send out missionaries to do what? To go and preach the gospel and to start more churches. You see, uh, it's pretty clear that Jesus is really into church. And therefore, to have the heart of Jesus is to love and be committed to his body, which is the church. Clearly, church is not something that Jesus is just kind of indifferent about, that he could take it or leave it. Rather, it's something that he is absolutely passionate about. And I'll tell you this, me personally, I believe in church. I didn't grow up going to church. When I became a Christian, I started going to church, and I found it to be the most wonderful thing in the world. And I, I tell you this, I love church. I believe in church, and I think that you should too. Because this is something that Jesus loves and Jesus cares about and something that he believes in. The New Testament knows nothing, nothing of lone ranger Christians who reject the church. Jesus is the one who set the whole system up, and he did it for a reason. You know, I spent a good chunk of my life as a missionary, and it was my conviction and the, and the conviction of the organization that I worked with. Uh, you know, we were a church-planting mission. And, and the mission work, our conviction was that mission work and evangelism are incomplete unless they are connected to a local church. Because the church is the entity that God has created for believers to grow, for them to be equipped, for them to worship together, and for them to work together for God's mission. That's why when we do missions here at Whitefields, you'll notice that we always do missions in conjunction with local churches. We want to support them. We want to strengthen them. We who have resources want to share our resources with other parts of the body who have less resources. And when we do evangelism, we always want to plug those people into good local churches where they can grow and be disciples of Jesus. With my children, my hope and, and my desire is that my children would grow up to love Jesus and to love his church. That they would view church as a wonderful place where people love each other and they forgive each other and they work through things as a family and they worship Jesus together and they attempt to do great things for God together. And I want to encourage you, love the church. Teach your children to love the church. And this church, Whitefields, may I just say this, let's build this church together. Let's build it together. Let's be a true community of people who are seeking God. And when problems come up, we don't just take our ball and go home and huff off. But let's be people who work through things as family together. Let's be people who work together to do great things for God's glory and for the benefit of people. 
Jesus loves church. He's committed to church. And to be a disciple of Jesus is to share the same heart for the church. The church is a redemptive community. The church is a mission outpost in the world. It's wonderful. Jesus loves it and we should too. So we see that they were committed to the church. Even though there were complaints, we're going to see that these people were committed to the church. They believed in it and they worked through it. We read in verse 1 that a complaint arose from who? The Hellenists uh, against the Hebrews that their widows were not receiving equal treatment in the daily distribution. So in that day, in that society, in Jewish society, you had two distinct, distinct groups of people. You had the Hebrews and the Hellenists. The Hebrews were old school, right? They were the Jews. They embraced the Jewish culture. They dressed the Jewish way. They keep all the traditions. They speak Hebrew or Aramaic. They're old school. On the other hand, You've got the Hellenists, and they're kind of the new school, right? They're, they're also Jews, but they embrace Greek culture. They speak the Greek language as their first language. And these two groups of people generally did not get along, not, not just in the church, but they didn't get along in society in general. The Hebrews looked down on the Hellenists. They considered them to be compromisers and sellouts uh, to Greek culture and Greek language. And the Hellenists looked down on the Hebrews, and they thought that they were just kind of fuddy-duddy, stick in the mud, like check the calendar man, you're still acting like it's 2,000 years ago. So they were all Christians, and they were all Jewish. There was nobody at this time who was a Christian who was not Jewish. So some were Greek-speaking Jews, others were Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews. And in a place like Jerusalem, which is where the Christian church is, is headquartered right now, the majority of people would have been Hebrews, meaning that the Hellenists would have been in the minority in a place like Jerusalem. And so what this means is that we have a minority group in the church who feels that they are being discriminated against. They said they were being neglected in the daily distribution. And what that is, a daily distribution is charitable assistance which the church gave to provide for these widows. Now one of the major themes of the Old Testament, particularly the prophetic books and even more particularly the minor prophets, is that God considers it very important. In fact, he considers it imperative that his people care about protecting and providing for the most vulnerable members of society. And there are four groups of people in particular who are listed in the Old Testament prophetic books and given special mention as the most vulnerable people in society. And here's what they are. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. And this is why Christians historically have made it a priority to focus on ministering to these groups of people. And rightly so, because the plight of these people is very dear and very much on the heart of God. In modern times, Western society, which by the way has been influenced greatly by Judeo-Christian morals, which come from the Bible... Western society, more modern times, has made great efforts to provide for and protect these groups of people on the state level. But back at that time, to be a widow was a scary thing. It was really scary because there was no safety net to catch you if you were on hard times or if you didn't have someone to take care of you. There was no social security. You were totally dependent on your children to care for you and, and take, you know, care for all your needs. And if you had no children, then you were really in trouble because then you would be at the mercy of other people to provide for you. That is, if anyone was willing to do that, and there was no guarantee that anyone would be willing to do that for you. 
So in the Jewish culture, it was the responsibility of the believing community to take care of these groups of people, and in this case, particularly widows. And they would do that by feeding them and giving them financial assistance. That's what the daily distribution refers to here in verse 1. And it would seem that the Jewish authorities had started to refuse to give financial aid to widows who had become Christians. They had cut them off. They said, if you're going to be Christians, if you're going to follow Jesus, then go for it, but you're not getting any more financial aid from us. And so the Christians, we see that they began providing financial aid for the widows in the church. So we see, again, that's interesting because we now begin to see the increasing separation between Christianity and Judaism. Judaism, sorry. The Hellenist widows felt that they were being overlooked in the distribution, that they were being discriminated against. Now, we don't know if this was just a mistake or a misunderstanding or if, in fact, discrimination was taking place. But either way, the, the issue is still the same. Some people's feelings got hurt. Some people felt that they were being treated unfairly. There was internal strife and the formation of two distinct groups which uh, didn't like each other. This provided the perfect setting for a church split or for some people to get embittered against the church and just leave. All of which would have weakened the church and distracted them from their calling and their mission. But take a look at the wise response from the apostles. This brings us to our next point. A wise response, priorities and discipleship. Let's read from verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So here's, what the, here's how the apostles dealt with this problem. They gathered the church together and they addressed the problem openly. There was a lot of good communication going on. And they explained to the people, they said, okay, we see that this is a legitimate issue, but here's the deal. It would not be right for us to neglect our calling as apostles to prayer and the teaching of the word in order to administer to the practical needs of these widows. Now, let me say this. Some people look at this and there's a question, right? Now, was this a good thing for them to say, or was this a bad thing? Some people look at it and they say, well, this response of the apostles is totally wrong. Because, hey, why can't they just serve some tables, right? Like, why can't they just feed some, some poor old ladies? What are they supposed to do, just sit in their ivory tower all day long, reading the Bible and praying all day? Do these guys think that they're too good for this? They're too important to get to soil their hands with this kind of lowly work of serving uh, old women food? Why can't they just do it? I don't personally take that approach. I don't think that that's the issue here. Rather, here's what I think. I think this is an issue of priorities. The apostles had been given a calling. They had a particular role to play in the body. And in order to do that well, they needed to devote significant time to studying and praying and preparing. And I know a lot of pastors, you know, and uh, I've seen pastors who are everywhere on this spectrum. I've seen pastors who do everything in their church. Sometimes, in addition to doing everything at the church, they also work a part-time job, and they just do everything, right? Like, if you call the church on the phone, the pastor answers the phone. Pastor manages the website. The pastor sets up the church. Sometimes the pastor leads worship. Sometimes that's done out of necessity. 
But as a general rule, I think that the apostles were showing a lot of wisdom here by recognizing and protecting their priorities. Why take away from their calling to lead and study and pray and teach when there are other people who could easily step in and do these administrative practical tasks? Why should the apostles be expected to do everything in the church? Yet, I would say this. On the other hand, I agree that there is something wrong with a pastor who thinks that certain tasks are beneath him. You could put it this way. There's something wrong if a system is set up so that the pastor has to serve tables, but there's also something wrong if the pastor considers himself above serving tables. Now, when we talk about serving tables, it's also important that I mention that we're probably not talking about only, you know, just being basically a waiter and setting the food in front of people, picking it up, cleaning the dishes, wiping the tables down. There was probably a lot more involved in this. It probably included handling the money that would go towards this program. It it probably included making schedules, getting stuff done, you know, managing volunteers. There was significant administrative and practical duties involved here. Now it's significant in verse 4 that we read that the apostles dedicated themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It was, in other words, something that they worked very hard at doing. It was work and they worked at it hard. In order to do it well, they wanted to be fully dedicated to it. So this wasn't them just trying to slough off this kind of lowly work, but this was them saying, look, we are wanting to dedicate our time completely to doing a good job at our calling." Not only did the apostles wisely choose to recognize and protect their priorities, but they also saw this as a wonderful opportunity, an opportunity for discipleship. They said, surely there must be some people in the church who are godly and who are gifted, and this might be just the perfect opportunity for those people to step up and get involved in serving in the church in a greater capacity. The apostles responded to the problem wisely and lovingly. I love the fact that they invited the people who felt they had been wronged to be part of the solution. Think about what they didn't do. They didn't say, hey, if you're complaining, then there's the door. Don't let it hit you on the way out. If you don't like it, then get lost. You know, and you might laugh at that, but I was talking to someone just over the past couple of weeks, and they were talking about people in their church who are, you know, that have complaints, and that was their response. Hey, if you don't like it, go away. Now, I don't think that that's the most loving response, because in here, in this instance, they actually listened to their complaints, and they considered, is this a legitimate complaint or not? And in this particular case, they found that, the, that it was actually a legitimate need that was being uh, arisen. And they worked together with these people to come to a solution that would be good for everybody. I think that's great. Another thing they didn't do is they didn't say, well, let's just create two churches, right? We'll have the first apostolic church of the Hellenists and the first apostolic church of the Hebrews. You guys can do your thing. You guys do your thing and we'll all be good. No, they didn't do that. They wanted to be unified. Another thing they didn't say is they didn't say, well, let's just create a committee and we can just discuss it to death until we all hate it, right? Instead, what they said was, this is a great opportunity for us to bring more people into leadership. We've identified an unmet need, and rather than having us stretch ourselves even more than we already are, this is a great opportunity to get people involved in God's work. There might be some people out there who have great character and great potential to lead, and this might be just the opportunity for us to train them and raise them up to be leaders. 
And so the apostles saw this as a great opportunity for discipleship, to bring more people into the work of ministry in the church and to give more people the privilege of serving God because that's exactly what it is. Let's go on to now our third and final point, and that is this, how to change the world, service and faithfulness. How to change the world. Verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set be, they, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands upon them. Now these men are interesting. If you look at the men who are listed here, the seven, several of them went on to become pastors and missionaries and evangelists in their own right. Stephen, we read, was a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Over the next couple of verses here in chapter 6, we're going to see that after serving faithfully in these practical areas in the church, taking care of the widows, he goes on to become an evangelist and an apologist. He's a person who preaches the gospel by applying, appealing to people's reason. Philip goes on to be an evangelist and a missionary. In Acts chapter 8, we're going to read more about Philip. We're going to see how he was used by God to start a revival in Samaria. And then after that, he went down and he met this man from Ethiopia and he led him to the Lord and he baptized him. And it is assumed and presumed that the, the Christian movement in Ethiopia, which continues on to this day, can be traced back to Philip and this Ethiopian man that we read about in Acts chapter 8. So, so God used Philip in a great way, an evangelist, a man who starts revivals, a man who leads, you know, starts things that lead whole countries to Christ. Procurus, he, he, we read later on in, in church history that he became the assistant of the apostle John. And after John's death, Procurus became the bishop of a church in Nicodema, which was a large and influential church. And, he, and later on in his life, he was actually killed as a martyr. But before these men did any of these things, here's how they started out. They started out serving tables, you know, wiping down dishes, you know, putting ladling food into plates. The pastor I learned the most from about culture and ministry and these things, there were a few things that he did which were somewhat unconventional. One of the things he always did was that when any young man came to him who wanted to be a pastor, who wanted to be in ministry, he would have the church hire that young man, but not as a pastor. They would hire him as a janitor. And, and a lot of young men applied, you know, and they had been, people applied who had been to Bible college or they'd been to seminary, and they wanted to be pastors. And so when the church called them back, they called them in and said, hey, we've decided to hire you, only not as a pastor, we've decided to hire you as a janitor. Well, a lot of these guys wouldn't take the job. They'd go look for a, a pastor job somewhere else. But the few who wanted to work there that bad, that they were willing to be a janitor, who did take the job, they found that in addition to their janitorial duties, they were being trained for ministry. They would be invited to go on hospital visits and to teach Bible studies, but their official job, their official position was to clean toilets and take care of the grounds. And as they were faithful in those things, those menial tasks, being a servant, in other words, more and more ministry would be entrusted to them. 
And there are dozens of men out there today who are now pastors who were raised up in this system. They started out as janitors. Now you might wonder, now why in the world would you take the people with the most knowledge and the most potential to serve the Lord, the most desire to serve God, and make them do things like clean toilets and mop up floors? Why would you take people, like here we read in Acts chapter 6, who are full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom and make them feed lunch to a bunch of old ladies? The purpose is this. The purpose, why are they doing this? Here's why. It's to teach these people the principles of leadership and the principles of true greatness that Jesus himself exemplified and taught. And what are those principles? I've got two things here for you. What are those principles? Number one, the nature of service. And number two, the importance of faithfulness. Number one, the nature of service. The work that these men were called to do was primarily practical, right? Schedules, accounting, cleaning, serving food, managing volunteers, handling complaints. And you look at that and you wonder, now why do you need spiritual men to do that kind of work? Why would you require of them that in order to get that job, they must be full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom and have a good reputation? Wouldn't it be enough to just have a living, breathing human being with half a brain, right? But see here, the nature of service is this. Practical service is spiritual service. I'm going to say that again because it's important. Practical service is spiritual service. That's why the apostles says that they laid hands on these men. They commissioned them and they prayed over them because why? Practical service is spiritual service. What's interesting is that the same Greek word used for distribution, right, distribution of money and food and financial aid in verse 1, it's the same exact Greek word that's used in verse 4 when it talks about the ministry of the word. In other words, the one, right, is handing out money and food. The other one is teaching the Bible, but yet the same word is used for both of them. The same word, which is the word service. And the implication here is this, that service is both practical and spiritual. There are several ministries that, you, that go on here at Whitefields every Sunday, from teaching children to, uh, you know, setting up chairs to handing out bulletins and shaking hands to uh, praying and all these things. But we don't consider setting up chairs to be any less spiritual than teaching children or praying. Both are important and both serve the same ultimate purpose. And it's important that we do not begin to create this false dichotomy where we think that practical service is somehow less spiritual. These guys were serving food, making schedules, handling volunteers, but it was spiritual work which required spiritual people because they were doing a practical task for a spiritual reason. Now, if you think about Jesus, think about this. One of his most powerful acts of service towards his disciples, which impacted them the most, it was very spiritual, but it was extremely practical. He wrapped a towel around his waist. He knelt down on the floor, and he did the job of a servant. He washed their feet. He did a task that they all considered to be beneath them, but he said, it's not beneath me. I'll do it. There was a principle that Jesus repeated over and over to his disciples because it was so countercultural, so opposite of everything they had ever been taught before, and that was the principle of servant leadership. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, we read how one day Jesus was with his disciples and they were talking about 
which of them was the greatest as they were walking. Jesus wasn't hearing their conversation, but he knew that that's what they were talking about. And so we read that when they came to the town where they were going to, Jesus asked them, what have you guys been talking about? And they were too embarrassed to tell him that they had been talking about which of them was the greatest. But Jesus knew, and he said this. He said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. In the very next chapter, in Mark chapter 10, again, Jesus' disciples are having the same conversation. Seems like they had this conversation a lot, actually. They're talking about their own greatness. Which of them is the best? And Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the, of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, Jesus is a man who changed the world. Without question, Jesus is the most significant, most important person who ever lived. We divide all of history based on before him and after him. If you get to that point, that means you're pretty famous. You're pretty significant. The book about his life, the New Testament, has been translated into more languages than any other book ever. It is the best-selling book of all time. More songs have been written about him. More people have dedicated their life to him than to anyone else who's ever lived. And so what is it about this man that makes him so significant, that makes him so great? Well, think about his life. He lived in a dumpy rural town in the Middle East. His mom was a teenager. His dad was a construction worker. He never had a lot of money. He never held political office. He never owned a house. He never wrote a book. He never traveled more than 150 miles from his own home. So what is it about this man that makes him the greatest man who ever lived? Well, the answer is found in these words which we just read. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He came to be the the ultimate servant, and as the ultimate servant, he is now the greatest who ever lived. He served us by giving his whole life. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death in our place. Never has there been a greater act of service than when God himself humbled himself and took on human flesh in order to serve us by coming to us, by coming to our level and doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. You know, just like these widows, don't you see the parallel between those widows and us in a spiritual way? All right, you got these widows. They're totally destitute. They're totally at the mercy of somebody else. Without other people's undeserved favor, they're lost. They're just, they're in trouble, right? And just like us, right? Without God's grace, we are totally hopeless, totally destitute, left to ourselves, separated from God. We are lost and we're in trouble, but the message of the gospel, the joyful news, is that God loves you so much that he came to provide for your need. He came to do a spiritual service in an extremely practical way. By taking on human flesh and then giving his life in place of yours so that you could be saved. He served you. He became the ultimate servant. And that's the reason why he is so revered as the greatest person who ever lived, because he was the greatest servant who ever lived. Jesus changed the world. And how did he do it? By becoming a servant. These early Christians changed the world. And you know how they did it? They did it through service. 
Some of them served in different ways. Some served by teaching the word of God. Others served by doing very practical yet extremely spiritual tasks. Jesus' disciples, they were always talking about their greatness when he was still around, remember? Now why? why? Why would someone talk about their own greatness all the time? I have to say I think it's this reason. Because ultimately they were seeking for what all people are seeking after in their hearts. Significance, happiness, purpose. And they thought that to be great, to be prominent, to be famous would give them all of those things that they desired in their hearts. These seven men, we, we read now that they come to be known as the first deacons of the church. And the word deacon is a very simple Greek word, and all it means is servant. They were servants. And to have the heart of Jesus is to have the heart of a servant. That same pastor I was telling you about just a minute ago, he had the practice of training pastors, right, by hiring them as janitors. But another thing about this man is that countless people tell stories of how the first time they came to his church, it was a very large church, by the way, the first time they came to his church, they were greeted by a man walking around the parking lot picking up trash before the service. And when it was time for the church service to start, that same man would stand up to preach. You see, in God's kingdom, servants are princes. Because it's understood that to be a leader is by nature to be a servant and that true leadership is based on serving others, not on being served. There are differences of callings, differences of roles, differences of tasks, but all are forms of service because the one we follow, the Lord of all, became the servant of all. That's the gospel. And he served us in very practical ways which had an incredible impact spiritually. The second thing and the last thing I'll say is this, the importance of faithfulness. We read then in verse 7 that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The result of people serving faithfully in their areas of service was that the word of God increased and as the word of God increased, more and more people came to the faith. The priests would have been the ones who are intimately aware and intimately familiar with the symbols and rituals of the temple and the sacrificial system and the apostles as they continued to teach the word of God and to preach the gospel and to say that Jesus is the answer to all the riddles. These priests came to see and understand that Jesus was indeed the Messiah they had been waiting for, that he was the fulfillment of all the symbols and of all the promises of the Old Testament. And from verse 8, we read this, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen started out serving tables, but it seems here that as he was faithful with that thing that God called him to do, that very practical thing, as menial and insignificant as it might have seemed in the moment, as he was faithful with what God called him to do, God eventually entrusted him with more responsibility. And we see Stephen now no longer serving tables, but now he's a preacher of the word. He's an evangelist and an apologist. He's a man who's being used by God to do mighty things and who reasons powerfully from the scriptures about why people should put their faith in Jesus Christ. And we're going to see in the next chapter how Stephen ends up becoming the first Christian martyr. That's what he's most known for. But here's what I want you to see. Before Stephen was martyred for his faith, 
This is who he was. He was a servant, a one who served in practical ways and was eventually called by God to serve in other ways as well. Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 25 that if they would be faithful in the smaller things that he had called them to do, then he would also entrust them with greater things. Many people, though, I'll tell you this, many people find themselves reluctant to do things which they consider insignificant or menial. But the way of the Lord is this, that he first gives you small things to train you, to teach you, to think as a servant, to act as a servant, to be a servant. And if you can be faithful in those things that he's called you to do, then he may give you greater responsibility. So let me ask you this, what has God called you to be faithful in? What are the areas that God has called you to serve in and are you doing that faithfully? What's interesting is this, the reward for faithfulness is not a reprieve from service, but in fact greater service, more service. But here's the radical thing that Jesus taught. Jesus taught us this, happiness is found in losing your life. Happiness is found in being poured out, in giving yourself away. Happiness is found in serving, not in being served. Happiness is found in giving, not in getting. Jesus changed history, and he changed the world, and he changed our lives, and he did it all through faithful service. And that is how he instructed us to change the world as well, through faithful service, by faithfully doing that which he has called you to do. The message of the gospel is that we were separated from God because of our faithlessness. But even in spite of our unfaithfulness, Jesus became the ultimate servant and he was faithful even unto death, serving us in the ultimate way that we might be redeemed and made right with God. And I would encourage you today, accept and receive what Jesus has done for you. And follow him down this path of radical service and radical faithfulness because that is where you will find the happiness and the purpose that your heart desires. Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you that you served us. We thank you, Lord, that you were faithful even unto death and you served us, Lord. You became the ultimate servant and that is why you are great. Lord, may we be those who follow that example, who follow you down this road of radical service and radical faithfulness for your glory. Lord, we thank you for your church. We thank you that we get to be a part of it. We thank you for this community of people who love you, that we can serve you together, that we can attempt great things for you, and we can be used by you. Lord, would you bless this church? Would you build it up according to your will and desire? And Lord, let us be those kind of servants that you were. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.